Welcome to the Willing to Listen South Bruce Proud podcast. Willing to Listen is a grassroots volunteer group based in South Bruce, Ontario, that is dedicated to thoroughly investigating multiple aspects of Canada's proposed deep geological repository for spent nuclear fuel. I'm Sheila Wittick, and I'm so excited to have you join me as we delve into this controversial project. Welcome back to the podcast. In this episode, which we are calling episode 5.2, Tony Zettel and myself finish up our conversation with Dr. Douglas Borham about all things radiation. Think about, uh, again, this, this safe dose again, it's about psycholo- psychology. We talked about flying, for example, right? If I look at a spent fuel bundle, if I look at a fuel bundle before it goes into reactors, it's made of uranium, right? It's giving off some radiation. I got a picture of me holding one in, in Bruce B before it was going into the reactor. And I'm getting a dose roughly of about four micro sievers now per hour from that fuel bundle, okay? So if I, uh, if I was to say to you that, you know, you want to hold on to this fuel bundle, most people would go, no, I don't want to get four micro sievers of radiation an hour from it. But then in the same note, I can say, well, what about if, uh, what about if you went flying in an airplane and you were, you know, flying down to Florida at 30,000 feet, do you know what your dose rate is there? It's four micro sievers per hour. It's the same as holding a fuel bundle. Well, no one's going to hold the fuel bundle, but lots of people are going to go to Disney World when it opens up again. So, you know, it's just, again, it's another risk thing about uh, are we prepared to accept it or not? And, and, you know, you say, well, what is the safe dose? Well, you have to sort of, um, you have to agree that the safe dose of radiation that we're giving off right now has got to be safe. because There's nothing we can do to avoid it, right? The food we eat, the air we breathe, the water we drink is radioactive. And consequently, we are radioactive. And so we're giving off radiation right now. So, you know, if I said to you, uh, if you sleep with someone for a year, you radiate them every night when you sleep with them. You're going to give them the equivalent dose over the year of a hand x-ray. Is there a risk to a hand x-ray? If you say it's all additive and there's no dose rate effect, then yeah, okay, there's a risk to hand. Then there's a risk with you irradiating your partner at night too, then, if you believe that. And there's all sorts of analogies you can look at. And I'm not trying to downplay it at all. It's just... There are levels of radiation that we are exposed to all the time. And I think the biggest thing from my perspective in radiobiology, and it's, it's been going on ever since I figured, you know, when I first started, was that we're not really talking anything mysterious when it comes to radiation. What radiation is doing is this in living things is creating these things called reactive oxygen species, or ROS, R-O-S. Well, what is ROS? Well, ROS are just oxygen species that have the ability to do chemical reactions in our body. So the radiation goes into our body. It ionizes water because we're mostly made of water. And that water, which is H2O, the oxygen part of the water now becomes these things called reactive oxygen species. And they go off and damage the DNA. So if I talk about an x-ray hitting your DNA, damaging your cells, only about 20% of the DNA is damaged directly from the x-ray. The other 80% is damaged from the water around the DNA. That water turns into these reactive oxygen species, which is like hydrogen peroxide, superoxide, hydroxyl radical. So hydrogen peroxide, you know what that does, right? You put it on a wound and it starts fizzing up and it burns like heck and it kills bacteria. It's doing exactly what radiation would do. It causes DNA damage to the bacterial cells. So reactive oxygen species. So when it comes down to it, radiation is not a mysterious thing. It's free radical biology causing reactive oxygen species. We breathe oxygen and our cells convert oxygen into energy. Guess what happens to that oxygen? It turns into reactive oxygen species. So we're actually making, we're literally mini irradiating ourselves when we're breathing oxygen, creating reactive oxygen species. So exercise creates a lot of reactive oxygen species. 
Breathing, just sitting and breathing air creates a lot of oxygen, reactive oxygen species. These things damage our DNA every day, all day long, as long as we're breathing. And a good example is if you're sitting there breathing oxygen for an hour, you're going to get about 100 times more damage to your DNA by just sitting there for an hour breathing oxygen. If you're waiting in a waiting room to get a CT scan, the CT scan will be 100 times less DNA damage caused than just breathing oxygen alone. So you don't have to, I wouldn't worry about the CT scan causing the damage. The hour of breathing oxygen is going to cause the same effect in your cells. So when you put it in that perspective, and we've done a lot of work where we've compared getting a CT scan with exercising, and they have the same effect. They stimulate processes that deal with reactors and oxygen species, which then turns on DNA repair mechanisms, which do all sorts of things. And we know exercise is good for us, makes us healthy. And that's causing reactive oxygen stress to our body. So these minor stresses that we have create these things for ourselves to recognize and upregulate genes and proteins that help protect us from insults like reactive oxygen species, whether it comes from breathing air or whether it comes from an x-ray. This might be a bit of a controversial question. Maybe a little controversial. (laughs) Everything's controversial. Why do you think we have people portraying low-dose radiation as being so dangerous? Why do you think there are people married to that narrative of low-dose radiation is so dangerous? Okay, so the only analogy I can come up with is a religious one. It's almost, to some extent, a belief that it's bad, and there's nothing you can do to help people understand the facts of it. It's just a belief. And so at at some point, you will never change some people's belief that it's all bad, and it's all horrible, and it's going to be the end of the world if we put some spent fuel bundles in the ground. And I think we have to understand that, that that's the case, and I I don't think that's not a bad thing. When it becomes bad is when it starts interfering with other people that want to learn the real facts about stuff. And when it interferes with processes that are designed to help us as a society to get this, this technology, the, you know, the nuclear power, the clean energy, the clean water that, that we have around these nuclear power plants, um, that, that's when it has some kind of effect. And that's where I think you have to understand that some people will never, ever change their mind about this. And I accept that. Like a lot of times when we were talking about perhaps building reactors out, out, out west to help with the tar sands extractions and stuff like that. You know, I had to do a lot of open houses and, and talk to a lot of people which were absolutely, totally against it, 100%, and it was all going to be horrible. But yet there's a lot of other people that would say, you know what, now that you've taught me some stuff about this, I'm, I'm prepared to listen a little more and I'm prepared to, to look at all the options. And I don't think there's going to be anything happening in the next year in your backyard but as you listen to the options and as more as we go forward in time and people get more and more involved in it, I think it's going to help people understand a little better that the city is going to be safe. You know, we have all this spent fuel, like some three, three million fuel bundles that a lot of the uranium came from Mully Lake that, uh, you know, we made into to fuel. And uh, I've had the luxury of having nuclear energy all my life living in Ontario. And, and now that we've stopped burning coal, you know, we don't have any more smog days. So now people in Toronto are getting the luxury of not having bad air to breathe. And, and the, the coal was replaced by the nuclear power reactors we have. So we're benefiting from the environment in this. And we, uh, we, have, we are lucky to be able to, to have that technology. You know, people are starting to understand that, well, maybe we don't need these monstrous, huge reactors. And, and as you know, the, the new technology for the small modular reactors are coming out. The small modular reactors will be able to, to, to provide clean, safe electricity for remote communities, for mining operations, for other places where now we're burning uh, fossil fuels, diesel and other things to, to, to extract stuff, causing pollution in the environment. 
And so we're going to have spent fuel to deal with from these things as we go forward. And this is a new technology that we'll have in Canada very shortly. And so it's, it's, we'll have to start thinking about how we manage that kind of stuff too. Uh, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a pretty. So Doug, good can I just uh, pivot? You've, you've talked a, you've talked a lot about low dose radiation. It really helped us understand that and get some good perspective on the effects on, on biological systems. But we know when spent fuel comes out of the reactor, this is not low dose. This is like oh. lethal dose radiation, yeah. right? So, and again, and this is, this is what makes it so difficult for people to understand because when spent fuel comes out of the reactor, it's at an extremely high level of radioactivity, extremely mm-hmm. dangerous to be around, but then that changes radically over time. Oh, and really? it, it changes really dramatically. And it, I studied mathematics. I understand what you know logarithmic curves are and what decay curves look like, but yeah. it's hard for the average person to understand. I wonder if you can put that in perspective for us. Just like, how does the radioactivity of like fresh spent fuel out of the reactor compare to say after it spent 10 years decaying in the yeah. in the spent fuel bay, then after it spent another 20 years in dry storage, and, and at that point, I think it would be ready to go into a DGR. How dangerous is it at that point? And then how does that continue maybe through the life of it? Because it's going to be in, sitting in underground storage for a long, long time. Okay, so, you know, I'm not a nuclear physicist. My daughter is, and but... Uh... <laughs> What, what I do is I look at the doses that come off of these things and I try and put it in terms of the biological effects. So you're not wrong when you say when they come out of the reactors, they are very radioactive, extremely radioactive. And that is because while they're in the reactors for the 18 months, we're splitting the uranium-235 and some plutonium, right? And it's being split into all these different elements, hundreds of different elements. These elements are unstable, which means the, the nucleus itself is unstable and it has to give off energy because they never break into stable pieces. They might sometimes once in a while, but mostly it's unstable pieces. And that just simply means the number of neutrons and the number of protons in the nucleus aren't balanced. So these fission products, we call them, are giving off all sorts of radiation at different energies and different types. And they're giving it off at a very high dose rate. And that's because they're so unstable. They have a very short half-life. They want to get rid of all their energy as fast as they can. And that's a very short half-life, which makes them very dangerous because of the amount of energy they're trying to dissipate fast so that they can actually become stable, reach their stable state and slow down. So when they come out of the reactor, you know, they're, they're up in the, the range of, of what I would call 54,000 sort of millisieverts per hour. Okay. So a human could take probably four, about half the humans to take about, we call it the LD50, lethal dose to kill half of humans is, is four, uh, four gray or four milligray, four, 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 four gray or four sieverts. If you're talking 54 sieverts or 54,000 millisieverts an hour, you're not going to, nothing living is going to, I mean, it it would be great for sterilizing things (laughs) because that's what we do with cobalt. But it's nine times what it would take to kill a person at that level. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 10 times, 10 times what it takes to kill a person. That's how, that's how radioactive it is. And so, but the thing is, is that because these, these, all these unstable um, fission products are, are elements are in there. They're decaying at a different rate, very fast rate. So the fact that they're decaying at a fast rate means that the short half-life means they disappear fast. And something like 99.9% of all those ripping hot radioactive elements or atoms within 10 years are gone. Now, there's still a lot of radiation coming off these things. It's still lethal to be near them um, after 10 years, for sure. 
But when you start, and, and I think because it's like you said, as a mathematician, you know what exponential decay means. It means it goes straight down to almost zero and then it levels off and it goes to infinity, right? And so the time to infinity is the always quoted millions of years before the last fission product disappears. But because it, a short-lived stuff decays very fast, all the radioactivity disappears very fast. And so after, say, about 100 years, which is, you know, going to be maybe a generation or two, you're down to a dose rate per hour that a human can stand beside the fuel bundle for an hour and, and survive it with no problem. Something like around 300 and 60, 300, and 300 millisieverts an hour worth of dose. So the fuel bundle in 100 years could be sitting on my desk here. And one hour from now, I'd certainly exceed my limit, the legal limit for working. But it's 0.3 gray or 300 millisieverts. Some people would argue that's in the range where you might get an increase in cancer risk of about 0.04% increase. Okay. What happens after another 100 years? So now we're 200 years out. It's again decayed. The, 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 short, the, the shorter half-life ones are now gone away. And you get a dose rate coming off a fuel bundle, roughly about 30 to 40 millisieverts an hour after only 200 years. Okay. So now I put the fuel bundle beside me and one hour later, what kind of dose did I get? I got a dose equivalent to maybe getting a CT scan. Yeah, it's, it's still radioactive, but it's all contained within the fuel bundles and it could be managed like I, I sometimes joke and say, you know what, if, if uh, 100 years from now, we absolutely show that 100 millisieverts a year is definitely be beneficial to human life, then everyone's going to want one of those fuel bundles in their backyard. Instead of a campfire, right? You go sit by it every, every once in a while and get your, your low dose of radiation. It sounds like science fiction, but who knows what we're going to know in 100 years from now. Yeah. But certainly uh, 200 years from now, after a fuel bundle comes out of the reactor, it's going to contain a lot of good things and it's, it's the radiation dose coming off it is, is very manageable. Interesting. And uh, I think the other thing that people don't understand is the effects of shielding, right? Right. We can handle this stuff safely as long as it's inside some concrete and lead yeah. and so forth, right? And I think what you know what you don't want to do is eat it yeah. because that's a whole different or way. If it, yeah. Eat it, breathe it. Eat it or breathe it, it in, get it into your body. Yeah. Right. And that's why it needs it needs to be contained for a long time. That's why we've got mm -hmm. corrosion proof containers and under, you know, 100 meters of rock and so forth. I always find it interesting that yeah. argument a DGR has never been done before, so we can't possibly do it safely, which, yeah, a DGR for spent fuel has never been created. But we know so much about shielding. We know so much about radionuclide migrations. We know so much about geology if you put all of those things that we know how to do well together, there's no reason to assume that we can't safely store fuel. You know, just because the end product hasn't yeah. been done doesn't mean that we don't know how to do it. It just means that we haven't done it yet. Like we know how to get there. We just haven't done it. Yeah, we, we've been careless in the past and that's because our forefathers and others didn't really understand the importance of containment and shielding and all these other things. I mean, when we first started with radiation, we had no idea. We did a lot of crazy things with it, right? We were irradiating people to treat all sorts of ailments and causing brain tumors and causing other things. And that's, that's called, you know, learning, learning the science as we go forward. And, you know, you're, you're correct in terms of the technology we know about shielding and, and detection. So you put the shielding up and you have your detector saying there's nothing coming out. Those detectors are absolutely accurate. They know. And so you can be confident when you're standing beside one of these spent fuel containers and you see lots of pictures of people doing that. And, and they're standing there and they're measuring the radiation dose coming off and it's nothing, then you know that your shielding has worked and in your anti-corrosion barriers. And then the, 
facility itself. And like I said, I'm not an expert on, on deep geological repositories, but the dose of radiation you're going to get from transporting that, that product to wherever it's going and the dose you're going to get by sitting on top of the container, having a nice job, making lots of money. And I think that's the other thing that I'm excited about is that this is just not a, a dump. It is a research facility, right? It's going to be an active research facility and the community that gets it is going to have world-class research facilities on the surface doing all sorts of other cool science that helps support this product and, and, or this facility. And, and that means all sorts of spin-off technology, all sorts of uh, high-paying, highly educated jobs and even all, and, and regular jobs. So I think there's our willing communities that can see the value in, in having this opportunity for their community help society and help populations in the future be able to do things better, right? And, and I think for me too, that like that's almost what I find the most frustrating is there are people who have legitimate concerns about the DGR, but they're taking this fear of radiation and using that to manipulate other people into not wanting the DGR. And I saw a video the other day, a little bit off topic from Brad Greaves. He's the Ignace chair of their CLC. And he did this really, really good speech that I have up on our Facebook page right now, but he was talking about positions versus interests. And if you have an interest in something, we can work on that and make sure it's addressed. But if you have a position, all we can do is argue. And I find that's yeah. the problem that we have here is we've got a lot of people stuck in their position and not willing to talk about the interest that's put them there. Mm -hmm. Correct. That's, that's a very good, good uh, way of looking at it, actually. Yeah, his speech uh, was phenomenal. Uh, I recommend everybody to watch it. It's so good. You know, I, I could go on and on and on about all these these various things that were, but I, I just wanted to reassure everyone that uh, the work that we're doing today is really understanding what's going on at the very low doses. And a lot of times you'll hear people say, well, we really don't know what's going on at low doses. We're really not sure about low doses. So we can, we might as well assume that it's all bad and just keep everyone safe. But when you start protecting people from things that cost money to protect them against that they don't need protection from, then that's a cost to society. And we start protecting people from things that could improve their health. Like there are a lot of people that are really worried about getting nuclear medicine or x-rays or CT scans. They're afraid of it. You go to the dentist. I mean, the doses there are, are minuscule yet they'll still throw a, a you know 50 pound lead apron on you just to make sure uh, what message does that send right so it's kind of like they run out of the room so there's all sorts of things that we do that keep sort of perpetuating this this notion that's that's all bad for us but like i said our technology has advanced so much even in the biological sciences in the last 10 years you know when we started looking at how our dna works it was back in the 1990s, right, when the DOE spent a couple billion dollars to sequence one human genome. Now we can sequence a human genome in literally days, whole genome. So the technology is, is gone so fast. And I was talking to one of my, my colleagues the other day, and, and now we have the ability to look at one single cell and how all the genes in one cell work up and down, oh, off wow. and on. So I'm going, like, when I was doing my research 30 years ago, I was lucky to look at one gene and it took me six months to figure out if it was going up or down, right? So we're gonna have we're gonna be able to keep up with this new technology of understanding cancer risk, cardiovascular risk, things like that. Um, our, our our ability to understand how cells work is gonna improve. Radiation is gonna stay the same. You know, we we we've always had the same level of risk, except you'll have people tell you, well, now the risk is more or less. But no, the risk has always been the same. So I'll give you a good example. One example is there's a lot of people that are concerned about radon gas, which is a naturally occurring radioactive material in, in most people's houses. Mm -hmm. 
All right, so an article came out a few years ago from one of our regulators that said, uh, we've made a mistake. Now radon gas is twice as dangerous as it was before. And I said, wait a second here. How did that happen? What, what, what just happened? How did radon become twice as risky? Because it's the same risky as it was yesterday as it is today, but it just became twice as risky. Well, it turns out that maybe the calculations and the measurements that were being done to figure out what dose people were getting was off by a factor of two. So it was maybe it was a factor of two higher than they thought it was. So therefore, automatically it became twice as risky as we thought. My response to that is simply, well, hang on a second. The risk hasn't changed, but now you're saying the dose is doubled. Hasn't the risk got cut in half when you think about it that way? So, you know, if we were off by a factor of two with the risk, but that the risk is still the same because it's always been the same, we're basing it on numbers that people measure, or again, hypothetical numbers, then you, it's exactly a different way of looking at it. So all this risk we talk about is... Uh, but you can see how that linear non-threshold hypothesis is like baked into our thinking, right? Yeah. And the yeah. nuclear industry has propagated that. And it, and it made sense in the, case, in the sense of like people working in the reactor vault. Yeah. where they're trying to protect themselves from relatively well, high, high doses, it makes sense. But it, at, at the lower level, it doesn't make any sense. No. And I, the way I was, I used to say to people, you know, because I, I, I was a cautious, quiet, non-believer in the linear non-threshold hypothesis, is that if I step off a curb, you know, that doesn't hurt me because my body is made to step up, to be able to step off a curb and to absorb yeah. the shock. If I step off a 10-story building, that's a not different story, right? My body's not made to, yeah. to accept that, right? And of course, radiation is like a very wide scale of levels of radiation. So yeah, yeah. thanks well, for putting it, all um, that stuff in perspective for us, Doug. And it was funny the other day, I heard... Um, a rumor through my Facebook scrolling that I tend to do quite often on rad and nuclear groups. Now, someone had made the statement that low doses of radiation are so dangerous that women aren't allowed to work at a nuclear plant when they're pregnant. And I just found it hilarious how wrong they are, because as an operator, I worked in the station through two pregnancies. <laughs> and like, yeah, we don't get any dose. And it's, we're even more closely watched than when we're not pregnant, but literally the blatant lie about that perceived risk of you can't even go in this station if you're pregnant. It just, it just makes me laugh, right? That, you know, people perpetuate this overwhelming fear that shouldn't be there. It doesn't, uh, yeah, it, it, again, it perpetuates the, the whole notion of fear by us saying, well, you can't get any dose if you're pregnant. Well, you're still getting a lot of reactive oxygen species from everything else you're doing when you're pregnant. So, and including when you exercise. And that's part of the reason why now we have really powerful tools to look at the effects of low doses of radiation on developing fetuses. And, and I don't know if you know, but there's really never been shown, even at high doses, um, mutational effects in humans from, from radiation at a certain, certain stage of their pregnancy, which is called embryogenesis or organogenesis. So the first and second trimester. But in the third trimester, we know in pregnancies that stresses to the pregnant female or the mother can create situations where the fetus itself is impacted. And a lot, of, uh, a lot of this has been shown in sort of examples of say the Second World War, when pregnant women were, were starved or threatened by war. Typically in the third trimester, if this kind of event happened, we had this what we call fetal programming or imprinting in the genome. So it's not genetic effects, but it's, it is a genetic effect, but it's not a, a mutational effect. It's an effect where the DNA of the developing fetus 
in a stressed out mother basically changes and can contribute to things like low birth weight, hypertension, obesity in the offspring when they develop. So we've been looking at this when it comes to radiation. And we've been, spent the last four years trying to figure out, we know high doses can cause changes, but what about low doses? Not even, not even as low as the ones in nuclear power stations, but exposures to things like x-rays, CT scans, medical diagnostic procedures, and we can't see anything. There's absolutely no effect. So the more we spend time doing this kind of work and helping people understand that there are levels and thresholds of effects we can handle during pregnancies and during other things. Like, for example, we're really getting big into space travel now, right? You can see, you see it on the news every day. And, and we do a lot of work with NASA right now. And, and we're sending living cells into deep space to find out what happens to living things in deep space. And part of our work in the underground research laboratory is working with NASA to understand what happens when you take away all that cosmic radiation. Typically, the best, the best astronaut to have this living is, is an astronaut that doesn't need to eat, doesn't need to drink water or have water, doesn't need to breathe, and, but it needs to be alive. So it doesn't eat, doesn't drink, doesn't breathe. And it's a living organism that's alive. And, that, and you have probably in your fridge, it's freeze-dried yeast. They don't eat, they don't breathe, they don't have any water. And they can live for years. And so we're sending them into deep space. They're the best astronauts. They're not so great flying things, but they have their own automatic spaceship that'll get them out there. So I was going to say, can they fly the, fly the space shuttle already? Well, I think, I think they're going out next, uh, within the year, they're going to be part of the first Artemis mission, which is going to take a rocket to the moon, orbit the moon, and send out what they call the sat cubes, which are little spaceships that will be flung off into space in different directions, carrying different things. And the one we're working with will have these living yeast cells on it that every couple of weeks, some will be revived to see how many are still alive from the space radiation. So this is going to be big and humans are going into space and they're going to be irradiated with this other type of radiation that we don't get on the planet. They're called HZE particles, heavily charged atoms of, of things like iron, like an iron, an iron atom, which is a heavy atom moving through space at the speed of light and, and blasting right through your body, not even slowing down. So um, yeah, so, so people are worried about, well, that might affect cognition Kind of sounds painful. <laughs> well, you know what, if you talk to the astronauts, they'll tell you that uh, they can see flashes of lights in their eyes from these things going through their head, right? It's a retina and gives off a flash of light. And so this challenge, this is the next sort of generation challenge that we have is how do we shield our astronauts? Uh, how do we get, you know, and how do we get people to Mars? And, and what, what are we going to learn from going to Mars? I mean, I was on a NASA talk last weekend and understanding the space radiation, the space environment and all the things that come along with it. Are gonna, it's going to help society in a big way because we're going to spend a lot of money understanding. You know, people argue, well, we've got a lot of problems on the Earth. Why don't we spend the money on Earth? And I think one of the quotes you used last week was, well, we actually, NASA spends less money, or get, has, a, has a budget that's less than the amount of coffee Americans drink in a year, like buying coffee. So it's, it, it's a small amount, of, it's 1% of, of something, but it, it's, it's just the amount of money we're spending to get to Mars and it, it radiation, space radiation is going to be a big thing. And so we that's have what to we're do that though. About. We have to study Mars because we have so many anti-nuclear activists that are going to stop nuclear power that we're going to kill Earth with greenhouse gas emissions and we're going yeah. to have to repopulate on Mars. That's yeah, what's yeah. going to happen. <laughs> well, well, I don't know. We'll see how that goes. I'm not volunteering. I won't be around anymore. I'm probably the best guy to go though because I'm old and uh, I'm expendable if something happens. I think it's I think our biggest challenge is going to be the isolation, right? And, uh, and stuff like that. But uh, that's all. Doug, good thanks fun. a lot. You, you've really yeah. helped to demystify a lot of this uh, stuff for us and really put things in perspective when it comes to radiation. It's a, it's what makes nuclear 
you know, scary and mysterious to people and people apply that to all things nuclear, whether it's isotopes or nuclear power or the DGR. So, you know, what we're all about here and willing to listen is helping people understand so they can make uh, informed decisions based on facts and not on fear. So thanks very much for your work that you're doing, which is groundbreaking and, and uh, very important, but uh, also for spending the time with us today. I think it's just been fabulous. Yeah, yeah thanks well, so much well, for coming thanks on. For to come on. Yeah, That's no awesome. problem. It's like I said, if you, if you want me to come back anytime. We will definitely take you up on that offer, Doug. Uh, we really enjoyed chatting with you today, and we look forward to our next discussion about all the radiation type things. And that's it for this episode of Willing to Listen South Bruce Proud. I look forward to further investigating Canada's plan for spent nuclear fuel along with all of you. Thanks so much for joining me. And remember, we don't have to agree on anything to be kind to one another. Mm-hmm.